Good morning. It's good to be with you all again this morning. Um, it's a privilege to be here for two weeks in a row, and so I appreciate your patience in putting up with me for two weeks. Um, so, If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. In many ways, as you're turning there, I see this morning's message and this morning's sermon as being uh, somewhat connected to last week. If you were here last week, you'll recall we studied in, we, the book of, uh, in the book of, cha- of Luke, chapter 24, the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And as he confronted those two walking on the road, he challenged them, and they're surprised by Jesus' suffering. He challenged them that they should have been, uh, they should have known, they should have been convinced that the Son of Man, the Messiah, would be one who would suffer. And he challenged them to say, if you would have understood the prophets, you would have expected this. So it seemed fitting this morning to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the chapters from the prophets of the Old Testament, and certainly one of the chapters that expounds for us the suffering of the coming Messiah. Bear in mind that these words were written hundreds of years before Christ's coming. I'll read the entire chapter, chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do come this morning mindful that it's this Redeemer, this Messiah, this your servant who even makes intercession for us this morning. Father, we pray that you will soften our hearts. God, we pray that you will decrease. We pray that you will increase and I will decrease. We pray that your name will be high and lifted up, that you will be magnified even in this time this morning. 
Help us to see and to understand and to know the truth of your word, to see the glory of your Redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1947, a group of Bedouin shepherds were out tending their flocks in a region just south of Jericho. And one of the shepherds realized that one of his sheep had gone missing. He had gone astray. And as you know, good shepherds, as they are prone to do, when they lose a sheep, they will leave the entire flock behind to go and find one missing sheep. As the story goes, this Bedouin shepherd was out looking for his lost sheep, and he was in a region not far from Jerusalem in a region where there were a number of caves. And he was afraid that one of his sheep that was lost was in these caves, and he knew that he didn't really have the time to go into each cave and to search each cave thoroughly to find his lost sheep. So he improvised, and he started to throw rocks into the caves, hoping that if he found his sheep, the sheep would come, would flush itself out in fear. But it so happens that as he threw one of his rocks, one of the caves, he heard pottery shattering. Intrigued, he threw another rock and heard another pot shatter. Thoroughly curious now, he went into the cave to see what was going on. And inside this cave, he discovered a series of jars. Many of them were empty, but as you may know, many of these jars actually contain scrolls. And it was in this discovery, this shepherd who's looking for his lost sheep stumbled upon one of the greatest finds of the 20th century, the lost Dead Sea Scrolls, as they've become to be known now. He discovered these scrolls and started to sell them to antiquities dealers in the religious community. The, the community of faith was astounded by this discovery. And the reason I tell you that story this morning is because in those scrolls, or in those pots, I should say, one of the scrolls that was discovered, I think there was actually two, virtually complete manuscripts of the book of Isaiah. While conservative scholars and theologians to that time had no concern about the historicity of Isaiah, they believed that this was truly God's word, there were some, there were some who questioned whether or not the book of Isaiah was really written before Jesus' time. And specifically were passages like Isaiah chapter 53. Could these really have been written prior to Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection? Because they so accurately describe the life of the Messiah. Truly, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed for many the reality that Isaiah 53 was written prior to Jesus' life, hundreds of years even so. And it shouldn't be a surprise that Isaiah 53 is a chapter that provides such, such questions, such challenges for folks, because it's a message that is one that really is sort of surprising. I want to challenge you this morning to see that Isaiah chapter 53, this chapter that we are going to study, calls us to see and to understand under, uh, to see and to understand that it's the sinners and outcasts. It's the sinners and outcasts who will be made righteous by the suffering and sacrifice of the Messiah. It's the sinners and the outcasts, those who have fallen short, who, those are the ones who will be made righteous how by the suffering and by the sacrifice of this coming Messiah who's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah, Isaiah understands that there's going to be a hesitation, that there's going to be a reluctance, because he opens in chapter 53, verse 1, with two questions. He asks these two questions in verse 1. Who, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. Those two questions go hand in hand. Who has believed this message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the arm of the Lord, that symbol of God's strength and His power, to believe this message, to believe the, the contents of Isaiah 53 is more than just mental assent or the ability to hear. It takes the power of God to reveal to our hearts, to illuminate to our souls the truth found therein. And so I challenge you even in this moment to pray for God's work, even in your heart this morning, as we study Isaiah 53, because we come dependent upon God's work and God's power and God's spirit to convince us of the truth found here in Isaiah 53. Why is this so difficult? The first point to see in Isaiah 53, the first point this morning is to see and to understand that the Messiah, the Redeemer, is a suffering servant. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who God has prophesied for us through Isaiah is one who is going to suffer to serve his people. But right out of the gate, you have to admit, this is somewhat unexpected, right? I mean, and, and to a degree to think that God, to redeem his people, the next great moment in redemptive history is going to come in a way that is seemingly completely unexpected. Consider some of the great moments in redemptive history. You have Noah and his ark with a worldwide flood creating this massive ship that he's going to house all the animals. No question that God was in this flood and that God was at work in this story. Moses going in to confront Pharaoh with the ten plagues and even as he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, going into the Promised Land, massive stories of God's glory and power showing up. The Israelites marching around Jericho without even raising a sword, and the walls come tumbling down. Surely this is the way that God works, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament. And yet, God's warning us that His significant, most highest point of Scripture, the highest point of redemptive history is going to come in a way that's completely unexpected. Read it again with me in verse 2. I'll read verses 2 and verse 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is telling us that the Messiah is coming, the Redeemer will come. He's one who comes not with the swagger of a professional athlete, or not with the beauty of a movie star, or not with the entourage of the rich and the well-connected. He doesn't come surrounded by the paparazzi. He's one who's actually, well, ignored. He has no beauty to be desired. In fact, he's one that men would hide their faces from. Have you ever seen something that was so hideous that it made you actually turn your face away? You just you can't look at it and see it. He's saying this is what the Messiah will be like. One from whom men hide their faces. They just can't quite look at it. He comes with meekness and humility. 
students often ask me from time to time, it's an intriguing question, if we have much historical evidence for the life of Jesus outside of the scriptures, outside of the four gospels, do we have much historical evidence for Jesus and his life and his ministry? And the truth is we do. We have some, but at the same time, we have nothing that compares with the four gospels. And isn't that what we should expect? Isn't that what Isaiah is warning us to see? That the historians of the world, that those who are telling the story of the first century Greco-Roman world, didn't see him. He was despised and rejected. They didn't even account him worthy to be written about. But those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed did. Those to whom understood the message that he came and preached, they understood. And they recorded for us the stories of redemptive history so that we would not be so that we would not forget or not understand. It's not just that Jesus was ignored or forgotten, but he was shunned and despised. I love the wording of verse two that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. It's interesting throughout Scripture that God often uses the the image of a tree planted by streams of water. That's what the righteous are like. They're planted by streams of water, nourished and healthy and strong, and they grow. They produce fruit in season. And he's saying that this Messiah comes like a root out of dry ground. A couple of years ago, my wife's aunt was cultivating an avocado tree. She planted the seed of an avocado and as it just barely broke the surface, for whatever reason, she decided to give it to me. She said, here, I thought you might want an avocado tree for your yard. And so she gave me this avocado tree that was just barely breaking the surface. And as I looked at my yard and I looked at the front and the back and everywhere else, knowing how big avocado trees get, I thought there's nowhere in my yard that I can plant this thing. And so I did the next best thing. Across the street from our house is an elementary school with a huge open field. And I thought, you know, I can plant this avocado tree over in this empty field. And that way I have access to fresh avocados anytime we want guacamole. And I don't have to deal with this huge tree in my yard. So I went across the street and planted this tree. And what I didn't consider is that there's no irrigation over there. It's dry ground. And so from time to time, whenever I would remember, I would take my bucket of water and walk across the street and water my little tree that was barely a foot tall. I was excited when it finally grew one leaf, flapping in the wind like a flag. But it looked like a tree growing out of dry ground. There was nothing impressive about it. And sadly, one afternoon, as the school board maintenance crew was there to mow the yard in an unceremonious fashion as he was driving his tractor down that field. My little avocado tree was destroyed. There was no beauty within that tree. There was no majesty for him to revere it. He didn't stop and get off his tractor and look and I think he thought he was mowing over a weed. This is what Isaiah is telling us. So this is what the Messiah is like, like a root growing out of dry ground, like one that has no beauty and no majesty. There's nothing to draw our attention to it. It's despised and rejected. But then he goes on. The question that we should ask is, well, why? Why does this servant suffer? Why is this servant suffering so much? And that's the second point that Isaiah explores for us, is that he challenges us to see that this Messiah, this Redeemer, this servant is suffering He's suffering for you. In fact, he's not just suffering for you. He's suffering because of you. And he's suffering because of me. 
He comes to bear the sin and the grief and the sorrow of other people, of His people. He bears our sin and our guilt and our shame. Why is He one that men hide their faces from? Why is He one who's been rejected? Why has He been one that's despised? Well, because He looks like one who has borne the guilt and the shame and the sin of His people. If you look at verses 4 and verse 5, there are four words in these two verses that I want to draw your attention to. We read in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I want to draw your attention to the words grief and sorrow, transgression and iniquity. In verse 4, Isaiah is hinting at the reality that we suffer grief and sorrow in this life. The result of sin, surely it needs no further explanation. You understand this point. But living in a fallen world, when we think of sin, we often think of the things that we do, the things that we commit, the things that we've done wrong. But isn't it true that we live in a world that's been marked by sin? Some of you even bear within your hearts or within your life the grief and the sorrow of somebody else's sin against you. And that causes grief and it causes sorrow. We live in a world where we experience the tragic results of sin and death. And doesn't it bring grief and sorrow? Jenny and I this morning were commenting on the events of this past week and it's amazing some of the things that have happened even this past week, in our lives and in our friends and in our families. And truly there's a sense in which we come this morning heavy-hearted, bearing the grief and sorrows of friends and loved ones. Just this past Monday, a dear friend, family friend, who I've known, Virgil, I should say really who has known me my whole life, uh, a dear friend, godly man named John, went into surgery on Monday for a heart procedure. They knew it was going to be an all-day surgery. And sadly, at the end of the day, the doctors realized the surgery did not look like it would be a success. And they went back Wednesday more Tuesday morning to try to finish up what was left undone on Monday. And John passed away in the hospital. His family knew the risks. As we followed the story of my friends and his wife on Facebook, we were filled with the grief and the sorrow of our loved ones. And truly there's a sense in which as you carry the grief and the sorrows of your friends, you feel that heaviness with you. You feel that heaviness in your life. And yet we're challenged to see in verse 4 that Jesus, our Messiah, is one who carries our burdens. He carries our sorrows. He bears our griefs. His wife on the morning of his passing posted on Facebook that the doctors were doing all that they could the doctors are doing all that they can, but she posted these words from a devotional where she found great comfort, written by Charles Spurgeon. I want to read it for you. Spurgeon writes, Beloved, with what smiles does he speak? What golden sentences drop from his gracious lips? What embraces of affection does he bestow upon us? If he had only given us pennies, the way he gave would have made them as gold. But as it is, the expensive gifts are set in the golden basket of his pleasant demeanor. It is impossible to doubt the sincerity of his love. 
for there is a bleeding heart stamped upon the face of all his coins. He gives generously and without holding back. He gives no hint that we are burdensome to him. No cold looks for his poor dependence. Instead, he rejoices in his mercy and presses us to his bosom while he is pouring out his life for us. Isn't there great comfort in those moments of grief and sorrow to know that we serve a Redeemer who has poured out His life for us and as He presses us into the bosom of His life, there we find His heart poured out for His people. There's only a measure of the grief and the sorrow we can carry for our loved ones. How much more so our Redeemer who truly carries these burdens and these sorrows. And it affects his demeanor and even his countenance. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Yet verse 5, we're called to see that these are the reasons why this Redeemer that we serve, this Messiah, this servant, suffers not just because he carries our grief and our sorrows, but even our transgressions and our iniquities. Those two words, transgression and iniquity, carry with them the idea of sin that we commit, but each has its own shade of meaning that gives us a more insight into what God is communicating to us through the words of Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgression. The Hebrew word for transgression, pasha, carries with it the connotation of contesting or revolting against someone in authority. It was the word used to contest someone's ownership. Isn't that a great word to describe sin? That in our sin and in our fallenness and in when we break God's law, we are contesting his authority. We're contesting his ownership of our lives. We're revolting against his kingship. When you think about breaking the law, when you contest the authority of the government, when you rebel against the authority of the king, Surely there will be some sort of punishment. There will be some sort of repercussions. And while we deserve the repercussions of those transgressions, what do we see in verse 5? That he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced. The servant who is coming, the one, the Messiah, he was pierced for our sins, for the ways that we have revolted against the authority of our God. And he carries in him the pain of that sin. He also tells us that surely he was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquity is a thoroughly biblical word that you don't hear much outside of Christian circles. Iniquity. The idea behind the word iniquity is something that's been twisted or crooked or bent. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Something has twisted it. Something has made it crooked. Several years ago, I was in a minor traffic accident. It was actually whenever I was in seminary. It was the day after final exams. Uh, and there's something about final exams, if you recall to those, those days in college, that have a way of just feel like it turns your brain into mashed potatoes. My, my brain was just not functioning that day as I was driving my truck. And I saw the red light. It was my fault. I saw the red light. It just wasn't registering fast enough. Fortunately, I was able to get on the brakes to minimize some of the damage, but I rear-ended the truck in front of me. Unfortunately, he had a trailer hitch. He had no damage, but it bent the bumper on my truck. And it bent it in such a way that I could only drive straight or I could turn left. I couldn't make a right-handed turn because it cut into the bumper, and I had to figure out a way to make left-handed turns to get home where I thought I could fix this bumper. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried it. 
as much as I hammered and banged and pried, that bumper was not moving. It would not budge. Even with the full weight of the vehicle in reverse, I had this whole scheme concocted. I was going to undo the damage on this bumper, but it had iniquity. It was bent. It was crooked. And you couldn't do anything to undo it. Iniquity and sin. Isn't it true that it has that function in our life that twists us? And these two words go hand in hand. The transgressions that we commit against God and His Word stem from the reality that our heart is crooked. It has iniquity. It's been bent. But isn't it also true that as we break God's Word, the iniquity and the crookedness and the bending goes in the other direction as well and further causes us to question God's goodness and His reality. And yet, this Redeemer, this servant, Bearing the griefs and the sorrows and the sin of his people was crushed for our iniquity. And we see in verse 6 the reality that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Truly Isaiah is calling us to see that we serve a redeemer. We serve a servant who comes to suffer and he comes to suffer through the sin of his people, the sin that we have committed, but even the sin that we experience living in a fallen world. And He does so bearing the burden and the pain of that sin, and yet He doesn't leave us without hope. Third point for you to see this morning. The third thing that Isaiah is arguing for us and to us is that Jesus' victory, Jesus' victory through suffering and death makes you righteous. Jesus' victory through suffering and death makes you righteous. Now, for the sake of time, I'd like to just... Point out three things, three ways in which you gain the benefits, three implications for your life of Jesus' victory through suffering that it has on your life of what it means to be made righteous. Number one, Jesus' victory gives you a new status. Jesus' victory gives you a new status. Notice in verse 5, we read that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him. Listen to this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We have a new status in Christ. No longer are we guilty. No longer are we bearing the consequences of the sin of our life, but we are given the new status of one who has gone free, who has been healed because of the work of Christ. His chastisement has brought us peace. The crookedness of our life that we can never undo, the iniquity and the transgressions that we deal with, Christ has borne those in his life. And truly, he has given us his peace, his wholeness. He has the ability to make the crooked straight. In your struggle with sin and in your battle with those same old temptations that crop up from time to time, do you see that Christ has come to straighten the crookedness of your heart to make it be true, to give you peace in God's presence. He has taken your guilt away. The second point that Isaiah makes here in Jesus' victory is that Jesus' victory through death gives life. Jesus' victory through death gives life. Notice in verse 10, there's this, uh, there's this reality of new offspring. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, listen to this, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's offspring. There's community. There's a new church 
that has been birthed by this redemptive act of Christ through suffering. And he gathers his elect, not just here on Sunday morning, but through all eternity. He gathers his people. No longer are you strangers and foreigners and aliens. No longer are we like sheep who have gone astray, wandering on our own, isolated and cut off from the community. But now we have a community and a people and a family. Even if you're single, you're not. You have a family of God surrounding you, the offspring of Christ and his suffering. The third thing that Isaiah calls us to see is that Jesus' victory brings new hope in our lives. New hope. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. When you consider the work of your life, whether you are working full-time in the work world, whether you are in full-time ministry, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whatever your work and your calling is, there's a significant aspect that the satisfaction of your life is tied to that which you have put out your life for. I can tell you a lot about a person. What brings them the greatest satisfaction? And here in verse 11, we see that out of the anguish of the soul of our Redeemer, of our servant, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see and be satisfied with what he has accomplished. And what is it that he accomplishes? Verse 11, the making of many to be accounted righteous, bearing their iniquity and their sin. He gives new status and new life. In summary, Isaiah 53 is showing us that you don't make yourself righteous. You don't make yourself one who is acceptable to God. But that God in Christ has made you acceptable to Him through the suffering of His servant, of His Redeemer. And because of that, He has given us access to God Himself and a new status, a new hope, a new life. A friend of mine tells this story whenever he was in college. He and one of his friends wanted to go to the uh, the golf tournament. I don't know if you're a golf fan, but one of the biggest tournaments of the year is the Masters tournament that occurs at Augusta National Golf Club. One of the most exclusive golf clubs in the world. One of the most coveted tournaments. And they had a friend who was wealthy, and his dad was not able to go to the tournament that year, and so he gave them their passes to go to the Masters tournament. But it wasn't just that he gave them passes to go to the tournament. He actually had VIP passes that gave them all access to everywhere on the golf course, and he tells the story that it was amazing. Here they were, these two college students, dressed like college students, clearly don't belong on the prestigious grounds of Augusta National, wearing VIP passes, and anywhere they went, doors were opened, Ropes were lifted. They were treated with the status of the well-connected as if they completely belonged. They met players and shook hands and walked into cabins that were off-limits to anybody else. Why? Because they were given a status that they didn't purchase and that they didn't deserve. In fact, it was the suffering, it was the sacrifice of another that gave them that right. And so we see in Isaiah 53, it truly takes the arm of the Lord, it truly takes the power of God to give us the ability to understand and to see that He has given us access to the very throne room of God. The sense that we don't belong there, yes, but with the obedience of Christ, with the suffering of Him who has borne our iniquities, that truly we are ushered into God's presence and made righteous. My hope and my prayer for us this morning 
is that we will latch hold of this truth in our own life and it will be a catalyst for us to serve Him greatly in the days ahead. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do come into Your presence because You have given us new life. You've given us new new status. You've given us new hope. Truly, Father, in Christ, You have sent Your Redeemer to bear our iniquities, to bear our transgressions. And God, we pray with that reality that we have this new status of righteousness in You. We encourage us in the days ahead that as we suffer and as we struggle and as we are tempted and tried, that we'll see our Redeemer high and lifted up and that truly He will encourage us to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.